Welcome to the Avenging Hour. John. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dang it. You stepped on me already. People say I talk over you. I apologize. Uh, I don't. I'm, I'm going to really. I'm going to work on that this time. Welcome to the Avenging Hour. I'm Jason. I'm John. Hey, John. How are you today? I am fine. I'm going to wait till you're done. There's going to be a respectful pause, and then I'm going to tell you how wrong you are. Excellent. Rather than doing what I normally do and just telling you how wrong you are while you're trying to explain your case. Uh, in one way, that's definitely more polite. But in the other way, you're just wasting time. I mean, really. Well, that's what I always thought. I'm like, I'm trying to be efficient, and I'm trying not to waste the listener's time. So I'll just tell them right away that everything you're saying is nonsense. But everything I'm saying is the God's honest truth. I'm just here for the funny And the God's the funny jokes. You do the history part of it. I just... Wait, there's funny jokes in this show? Yeah. When I do my write-ups, sure. Oh! Ow. Previously on The Avenging Hour, Vision learned that he was the original Human Torch... Iron Man almost died, and the Legion of the Unliving discovered that being dead is a lot more fun than working for Kang. And now, episode 58. Iron Man actually did die. Yeah. And Mortis brought him back. I don't agree with that decision. Not necessarily bringing him back from the dead, but saying that Immortus has that kind of power. Yeah, we didn't like that. No, not at all. Our first issue today, issue 133, from March of 1975. This one's by Steve Englehart, Sal Buscema, and Joe Staten. This is amazing. It's been like a year. I know, right? Same people. <laughs> yeah, right? Look at the gay us. I'm starting to not even look. Yeah, it's just those guys now. Uh, this one is called Yesterday and Beyond... Dot, dot, dot. There's no, there's no exclamation point. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. We start our story with the traditional cold open non sequitur. This one dealing with Wanda bringing a chair to life and having it try to murder her. It appears being locked up in a room with a crazy cat lady has bestowed upon her some modicum of dangerous wizardry. Perhaps we'll learn more about it some other time, because we've got a real story to tell. Back on Limbo, our heroes are collected in Immortus' throne room just chatting about life. Immortus apologizes for dragging the team into that whole kerfuffle with Kang and decides to reward them with a bit of historical knowledge. He hands Vision a talking stick and sends him on his way. Then he hands another talking stick to Thor and he and the rest of the team get sent off to some other corner of time. Meanwhile, we get another quick aside showing Moondragon piloting a ship towards Avengers Mansion, whining about how Captain Marvel never returns her calls. I don't know what any of that means, so let's turn instead to the origin of Vision. Here's the gist of what we know so far. Phineas T. Horton created the original Android Human Torch and thought he was something special. But he just couldn't fix a tiny glitch. The fact that he burst into searing flames whenever exposed to oxygen. The citizens were understandably freaked out and forced him to shove the torch in a containment tube, sink him into a vat of concrete, and bury him underground. Well, that didn't work out so well. The contraption sprung a leak, oxygen got in, and Human Torch went on a rampage. It wasn't until he dove into a pool and was covered by its seasonal glass cover that he was able to be contained. Hence, the Vision's feelings of claustrophobia. Another brief interlude takes us back to that glowing green swordsman ghost thing talking to our hooded figure in a Vietnam alleyway. Surprise, surprise, the hooded figure is actually Libra. He and Veggie Swordsman have hatched some sort of plan involving the previously seen Moondragon, but enough about that, let's learn a bit about Mantis's origin. This one is slightly more interesting. We swoop in on a barbaric race of humanoids inhabiting the planet Hala. These are the prehistoric Kree, a band of savages who fight and kill to survive. The Kree share the planet with a race of sentient plant creatures called the Katati, who are slow and kind and intelligent. I think you see where this is going. One day, the Skrulls land on Hala and announce that they will soon bring technology and structure to the planet if the races pledge loyalty. Since two races inhabit the planet, the Skrulls first need to select who will be the planet's representative. To this end, the Skrulls set up small groups of each race on small moons and give them one year to build a civilization. 
When the Skrulls return, they find a gleaming city built by the Kree, a monument to their hard work and determination. However, the Kotati have thrived as well. Without damaging the moon or using its resources, they have developed a lush garden park that demonstrates their peacefulness and thoughtfulness. Well, the Kree are having none of that and flat-out murder the Kotati. <laughs> when the Skrulls voice objection, the Kree turn around and murder them, too, for good measure. Then they promise to use the Skrull technology to advance their race and conquer the Skrull homeworld. So, oops, to be continued. Our roll call this issue is Thor, Iron Man, Vision, and Hawkeye. Mantis is still here. Scarlet Witch and Agatha Harkness are locked in a bedroom. The Mortis leads the festivities. We see Phineas Horton and the original Human Torch. We see Morag, the Kree chieftain, and Dorek, the Skrull emperor. We see Libra and Green Swordsman. And we get an appearance by Moondragon. It's amazing how ahead of its time this comic was. Because you don't think in the 1970s that you would have options for vegetarians. But here we have a veggie swordsman. Which is a really nice alternative to the meat swordsman. It is. I like veggie swordsman. Do we need to talk about anybody here? Phineas Horton? Phineas Horton first appeared in Marvel Comics number one in October 1939. He created the Human Torch. That's about it. <laughs> That's my write-up for Phineas Horton. <laughs> that really is about all you need to know about Phineas Horton. And Moondragon, I know, was in here a couple issues ago, but we didn't talk about it because she didn't have a speaking role. Yeah. Uh, Moondragon first appeared in Iron Man number 54 back in January of 1973 as a character named Madame McEvil. <laughs> she was created by Bill Everett, Mike Friedrich, and George Tuska. Her basic origin is uh, Earth Girl driving through desert with parents. Uh, they witness Thanos' ship land for the first time on Earth. He blows up their car so they can't be a witness, but she's thrown free of it and rescued by Mentor, who's Thanos' dad. Uh, he sweeps her away to uh, Titan and teaches her all kinds of cool stuff. It's kind of like a reverse Superman origin, <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> she was rocking to the planet Titan. <laughs> she was, like, stolen from a planet. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a martial artist and a, and a telepath. Yeah, eventually. She uh, first appears as Moon Dragon in Daredevil 105 in November of 73 because apparently Madame McEvil didn't catch on. Didn't catch on. Uh, she becomes Madame McEvil because she's trying to find ways to defeat Thanos and she's um, basically experimenting on some Earth people and creates some really lame supervillains. Uh, and she has she, she manipulates some good guys into fighting so she can study them. I really like Moon Dragon. Well, that's an oversimplification. That's a. I'm not sure how much I really like her, but I find her fascinating. <laughs> She's one of the most interesting characters around. She is an interesting character. They do a lot of things with her, yes. especially when she gets into the Defenders. So, but even in the even in the Avengers, we'll see issues where she is kind of a bad guy in this comic. Yeah, she uses her mental stuff a little too much. Yeah, it's a little crazy. I know when we talked before we were recording, you you didn't like this issue. I don't like any of these issues. Spoiler alert. Well, I told, yeah. I mean, if we're gonna go down that route, I told you that. Oh, I really liked this one. But then the more I read of the next issues, my my liking went way downhill. Um, I was interested in the whole. Scroll and Kree thing and how they were formed and how everything started. I never knew any of that stuff, so it was kind of interesting to me. I was not interested in it at all. And it's funny because when I first started reading comics before I knew all this history of it, I mean, you look at the Kree and you look at the Skrulls and you think, oh, the Skrulls must be the bad guys because they're green and they look evil. But they were actually like kind of the peaceful, hey. Yeah, they weren't. They, this is before they were militaristic. You know, they were just like, we're going to. They're actually only militaristic in response to the Kree attacking them so much. Yeah. The Kree are the actual jerks, even though they look more like us. Oh, is there a moral something? here? I think there might be something in there. Um, the cover of this issue uh, has the Avengers amazed as Libra is unmasked as Libra. It has absolutely nothing to do with the story. No, Libra has very little to do with this story at all. The Avengers don't care that he's there or that he's unmasked. Even and the further we get into this story, Libra has nothing to do with it. I'm this. not sure why he's here. <laughs> and at first I was frustrated that the cover was such a misleading, and then I realized... 
how do you create a good cover for a non-story like the one that we have in this issue? Yeah, there's really nothing going on in here. It's all just telling stuff. Uh, the only interesting part of this issue for me was to see Wanda <laughs> and Agatha Harkness at the very beginning of the issue. Um, I'm I'm interested. So when Wanda creates the chair that tries to kill her, yes. she says, "Good Lord!" And Agatha Harkness's reaction I thought was really interesting. She says, "If you wish to retain my services, child, you will not use that phrase in this room again. It is most counterproductive." So what does that mean? Is she saying is she is she insulted because? Oh, I know exactly what that means. What does it mean? She's using black magic. It's not approved by any kind of god or anything like that. It's like so you the think antithesis she, of. So you think she's saying it because she feels that um, like your god's not going to help you now, woman. Interesting. I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure because you really could read it either way. I feel like. I'm really not sure what that chair was going to do to her, though. Agatha Harkness is like, oh, you lost your concentration, you, you brought this chair to life, and then you turned your back on it to, you know, put your hand on your forehead and moan about life, and now the chair is coming after you. Like, what's the chair going to do? It's a chair. Would you say that Wanda was in pre-faint? <laughs> she there was. She turns around. She was preparing for it. It was just, it was just very, to me, it was very odd. Um, and then Agatha Harkness zaps it, and it turns back into a chair, but it's smoldering. Like, <laughs> Why? <laughs> This issue is another reason why I hate Immortus so much, because Immortus suggests that the Celestial Madonna, or Kang's role in the Celestial Madonna plot, was part of a scheme, was all part of his scheme to teach Kang the dominance of destiny. Right. And this is why I hate Immortus, because he will do this again and again, where he will take credit for manipulating events. Like he knew, oh, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I knew that. And dude, you were in a containment tube last issue. I meant to do that. Until Hawkeye freed you. Like, how did how did you control that situation? We have had no indication in the past few issues that he was, I mean, right now he seems like a big poser. Because he's all calm and collected. And like, oh yes, this was part of my scheme. Where, like you said, an issue or two ago, he was sweating out on the containment tube, screaming at people to get him out. You don't need to do this. Come on, man. Um, but it's... it's a, I, I really am not an Immortus fan. Since we were on that page, and those talking sticks that he gives them, what's uh, called? His synchro staffs? Um, are they, I thought they were chronostaffs. I think synchro it's staffs? a synchro staff. I found out an interesting tidbit while I was doing some research here, and you probably already knew this. But years down the line, we come to find out that these synchro staffs are actually space phantoms. That will be in the Avengers Forever Limited series that Kurt Busiek does. Yeah. Kurt Busiek will do it, we'll, and we'll talk about it eventually, because it is an Avengers title. Don't the space phantoms have to, like, when, they're, when they become something, don't they have to switch places with it? Yeah, so, so there's a bunch of sticks. So this actual stick is, like, just somewhere else? <laughs> one, and again, as far as we know, at this point in time, there's only one space phantom. We haven't learned yet that there's an entire race of them. Right. But yeah, Kurt Busiek does an entire 12-issue limited series called Avengers Forever, which is basically... Like, the, the issues we're going to be talking about this week and next week, all retcons. And yet it's interesting. <laughs> and I wish that he could have shown uh, Steve Englehart how to do that. Because <sighs> part of the reason is because the Avengers are given something to do. So when he gives this, this synchro staff to Thor, Hawkeye's comment uh, is, I tried grasping the staff once at the Playboy Club. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what it means either. Maybe he should stay out of the men's locker room. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I was I was amused because it it seems so risque for them to say Playboy Club. I mean that's that's a double entendre of some sort in Playboy Club. I just I don't think that's something we would have seen in this comic five years ago. Hawkeye can't shut up in this issue. He keeps saying stupid little asides throughout the whole issue, and everybody ignores him. I don't. There's so many things going on. I think he's trying to. I think they're trying to give some interest to the issue. 
because there's, there's not interest anywhere else. So they'll have Hawkeye say as much as he can. Why did we have to have four panels with Moon Dragon in it? What is that? How did that advance the story? He's setting something up. And I'll take it because at least it's something that's happening in the now and not just flashbacks. He's falling back on this boxes of, te- of oh, text again. There's so much writing on that page. There's so much text on these pages. Um, the, his, prof- his portrayal of Professor Phineas Horton is interesting. Phineas Horton is portrayed in this issue as being rather greedy, I thought. Which is not something I've ever seen from him before. And I'm curious if that was Engelhardt's decision, or if in Marvel Mystery Comics number one, that's how he was portrayed. Because normally they, they portray Phineas Horton as being uh, an altruist, trying to help mankind. Why do you think he's greedy? When he seals the human torch in concrete, he says, I'll bury you in concrete, blah, 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 until the day I can control your flame so that you might do my bidding and make me a fortune. Okay, what is that? <laughs> I think it's the bidding, do my bidding connected with Make Me a Fortune that yeah. makes him seem a little a little heartless. A little control freaky there. Yeah. And so we had talked before, we knew that the vision was the human torch, and we had talked before about that's why he was afraid of water, but we'd said it wasn't just water that scared him. And in this in this episode, in this episode, in this issue, <laughs> we find out that part of the reason he was also freaked out when he was when he was trapped someplace where he couldn't get out was because of being trapped under the pool cover. Yes, he was um, claustrophobic. Yes. I don't have much more to say about this issue. As far as the Kree stuff goes, the Kree and the Skrull stuff goes, what's interesting to me is we get the... When you talked about the Kree and the Kotati being um, being transported to a place for them to, to, to figure... Did you say where? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I know that the Kree get put on our moon. Yeah, they get put on our moon. And this is really interesting because they create... And, and this is something that has not been a big deal yet in Marvel, will become a very big deal is they create the blue area of the moon. Right. Which is this section of the moon that is um, has a breathable atmosphere. It's where uh, the Watcher lives. It's where the Watcher lives. It will eventually become where the Inhumans live. Right. Uh, and it is some place that the teams go to. It's where, in the Dark Phoenix saga, it is where they have the big climactic fight to, d- to determine if Jean Grey lives or dies. Um, the Avengers will be here again during the collection obsession in the 90s. They come to the blue area of the moon. The blue area of the moon is a big deal at Marvel. So it's kind of cool to get that the origin of that. I didn't need to go through all this nonsense to find out that out. They could have told me that now, you know, in, in, a, panel or two. in a panel or two. But there I you would, go. I would have much rather seen more of the Kotati. Um, they really focused on the Kree in this, and I guess that makes sense. I have nothing else to say about the issue itself. You? Uh, no, not good. So what about Stan Soapbox? Well, he finally announces the editorial changes that they had promised an issue or two ago. Uh, Len Wine is executive editor of Color McComics. Marv Wolfman is executive editor of Black and White Magazines, and Chris Claremont and Don McGregor are their respective managing editors. I think yes. he broke it down a little further then after that with some other people I've never heard of, so I just kind of left them out. Yeah, and he mentions that Roy Thomas is editor emeritus. Right, we talked about that before. Um, and he also writes a nice little poem uh, thanking the various people who create comics for the holidays. He did this like last year, mm-hmm. I think. And he it's thinks surprisingly shorter this time. He thanks the people at the Electric Company and those who print the calendar and Origins of Marvel Comics. We get some free plugs in for those gotta, projects. Got to get Origins of Marvel Comics in there. Any other bullpen bulletin notes? Uh, the official Mighty Marvel Comic Con will take place from March twenty first to the twenty fourth of nineteen seventy five. No location provided yet, and a vague guest list that seemed to include Stanley. We also find out that uh, many of Marvel staffers are moving, and and well, part of me goes, who cares? Part of me also says this is what the bullpen bullets is supposed to be. Yeah. Details about their lives. We find out that Dave Cockham just moved across Queens and Rich Buckler has moved to Detroit. Anything else? No. They they do one last time. They also get a mention in of the Marvel value stamps saying that they are only appearing on letters pages. 
So if the comic doesn't have a letters page, it will not have a Marvel value stamp. So just don't go randomly cutting out panels of superheroes? Is that Basically. <laughs> what do, and what does this comic not have? Uh, a letters page? It's true. So no Marvel value stamp in this comic. Good. So it wasn't cut out of mine. Who's your MVP? It's hard to pick one because this isn't a comic. It's a Marvel handbook entry. So I'm going to pick Hawkeye because at least he tries to keep things lively with wisecracks. Nope. The MVP's Agatha Harkness for saving Scarlet Witch from a chair. Useless character? My useless character is Hawkeye for too many annoying comments. Um, have I mentioned that no one does anything in this issue? Doesn't necessarily but, make them useless. <laughs> but I'll choose the Scarlet Witch for almost getting killed by her bedroom furniture. <laughs> you could call the story the useless character. <laughs> Avengers level threat? No, there is no threat. With the chair? <laughs> yes, like I said, there's no threat. Uh, final grade? Yeah, you're gonna hate me. I gave it a B, because I was interested in the Kree scroll stuff. Other than that... I give it a D. Alrighty. I think that there is important information in this issue, but this is not a story. So we're All coming from two different directions, is what you're saying. All this is is flashbacks, and the Avengers are not here. And the story that we're telling, we're not seeing the story, we're being told the story. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of narration telling us what's happening in the panels. I don't like it. Have I mentioned that? Uh, That's right. how I felt reading this issue. <laughs> Moving on. All right, one more issue this, this episode, and then we can go take a nap. <laughs> Avengers number 134 is from April of 1975. It is by Steve Englehart and Sal Buscema, and it is called The Times That Bind. Do you see what they did there? Yeah, I did. Oh, yay. The cover promises another issue of flashbacks. Thor, Hawkeye, Iron Man, and Mantis are still flying through time, guided by a talking stick. I cannot wait until some scriptwriter tries to sell this as the next big Marvel movie with that sentence as the opening of their pitch. Because an issue of flashbacks isn't boring enough, we're then given a flashback explaining how we started doing flashbacks and flashbacks of last issue's flashbacks. That word has now lost all meaning to me. Flashback, flashback, flashback. It's like a nonsense word. Anywho, on to new flashbacks. As we find out that, after killing the Kotati, the Kree now want to kill any pacifists amongst their own kind. Any surviving Kree pacifists go underground, and while that would normally be a figurative saying, it here appears that they literally went and hid out in a basement somewhere. They begin to learn martial arts and develop their minds, and then after years of this, they are telepathically contacted by a few remaining Kotati. These Kotati have given up their mobility to strengthen their mental powers, and they propose an alliance. I don't know about you, but that chapter about Kree that won't fight and talking immobile trees has left me breathless. So much excitement. Let's catch our breath by going to see what's happening with the Vision and his own talking stick, shall we? The Vision is watching the original Human Torch in his war Toro fighting criminals in the 1940s. Well, he was watching it, but the Torch just got himself captured and buried in the desert until an atomic explosion awakens him in the 1950s. Once awake, the first thing he does is find his mostly naked ward and grasp him firmly by the shoulders and, um, perhaps we should give them some privacy. Skip ahead a bit, where the Torch, who thinks he's dying because apparently absorbing the radiation of an atomic explosion is not a good thing, flies away to be by himself and goes Nova, burning himself out. Do you care yet? If so, you'll be disappointed to find out that we're returning to Mantis's group. I'm disappointed to realize that we are only one-third of the way through this issue. So, the pacifist Kree and the immobile Kotati join forces, naming themselves the Priests of Pama and building themselves a proper headquarters. This is a wonderful idea, as now the militaristic Kree know just where to find the pacifists and can attack them, although they don't know about the Kotati in the basement. There's a Kotati in the basement, the name of my first children's book. <laughs> Did not sell well. However, instead of killing them, the Supreme Intelligence, that most green and jellowish of intergalactic rulers, just deems that the pacifist Kree be exiled, blissfully unaware of the talking trees they have in their wine cellar. 
Oh, goody. Now the Star Stalker comes into the picture, that lizardy destroyer of worlds, and I explicitly refuse to recap most of his history, as we learned about it a few episodes ago, and it was stupid enough then. Suffice to say that the priests of Palma managed to stop him. Hey, we're going to take a break to do something that's not a flashback. Hallelujah! Moondragon has arrived at Avengers Mansion, where she chats with Jarvis, who explains that the Avengers aren't around. He tries to contact the rest of the team, but he can't, so he starts throwing shade at the Scarlet Witch, giving her and Agatha Harkness a cue to pop in and be spooky and magical. Moondragon suspects something is amiss and tries to find out telepathically, leading to a fight, one that Wanda wins. Wanda and Harkness then head back to Wanda's room, but something definitely seems to be wrong here. But hey, why explore an interesting plot set in the present when we can be tortured by more flashbacks? The Vision is now watching the Mad Thinker retrieve the Torch's body, which he revives and sends to fight the Fantastic Four. The FF beat the Torch and just leave him lying around, since they think he's human enough to die, but apparently not human enough to bury. Thus, he's easy pickings for Ultron. But we don't care about that. We want to know more about the Kree. The priests are wanting the supreme intelligence about the Star Stalker, but in his all-encompassing intelligence and wisdom, he knows that sounds really stupid, and he poo-poos them. When they volunteer to split up and fly to various worlds to act as sentries against the Star Stalker's return, he's so happy for them to leave him alone that he quickly agrees. They each dig up a Kotati to take with them, break up into boy-girl pairs, and scatter throughout the universe. Two of them and their bouncing baby Kotati come to Earth and start the priests of Palma sect that train Mantis. They also plant their Kotati, and Mantis realizes she's familiar with where he was planted, as it's the same place they buried the swordsman. Suddenly, there's a blinding flash, and the group is transported to that very grove, face-to-face -face with Libra and the glowing green swordsman. To be continued, God help us all, because two issues of flashbacks is never enough. We're only halfway through, I think. The roll call this issue is Iron Man, Hawkeye, Thor, and Vision. We see Mantis, Moondragon, Jarvis, the Scarlet Witch, Agatha Harkness, uh, our glowing green swordsman, and in flashback, we see the Kree... Toro, the Human Torch, the original, the Mad Thinker, Mr. Fantastic, the Thing, and the Supreme Intelligence. Our villain in this issue is Steve Englehart. <laughs> I have a question for you before we get into any... No, I didn't like this issue. Before we get into any of the actual story. Is there a story? Toro. Was Toro also an android? Mm-mm. How did he burst into flames? Toro was a mutant. He was a circus strong... Or no, not a circus strong man. He was a circus performer, a fire eater, who when the Human Torch flew past him... The torch being that hot and near his body caused him to burst in flames. So he was always on fire then? No, no, he can turn back and forth. He's basically like a human. He has the same powers that, the, but, that both human torches have. Is he still around? Ah, uh, no, he's killed by the Mad Thinker sometime in the 70s? I think in an issue of Submariner. <laughs> I was hoping he wasn't an android. I was thinking, who would create an android boy to hang out with a human torch? That's really weird. disturbing, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if it's more disturbing that he's a human boy hanging out with a human torch with wearing a Speedo, but... Um, hey, the title, The Times That Bind, you said you, you know where that came from. That's from The Ties That Bind. Yeah. That's from a 1782 hymn by John Fawcett um, called Blessed Be the Ties That Bind. Are you going to read it to us? I will not. No. Um, I have also am realizing that the credit, there's no logic to the credits because some issues, they just lump Salvasima and Joe Staten together as artists. Right. And then at other times, like this issue, Salvasima is layouts. And just that in his embellishments. So, pencils and inks. Yeah, I mean, layouts suggest very rough pencils. Yeah. But, yeah, basically, I, I just wish they would be a little bit more consistent. Why, why do they have the letterer as 
Calligraphy. There's no calligraphy in this. Yeah, it's true. Um, I had really stupid notes for this one. Because you, I mean, what other kind of notes would you have? Thor is surprisingly says that um, things have happened quickly. Events have happened rapidly, which I'm like, seriously, dude? This is not rapid. I don't know why he thinks that. Did they actually have to watch... Did they have to watch the Kree build that whole city on the moon? <laughs> <laughs> it's in real time. <laughs> they just, just you know, float out in space for like a year and watch them do the whole thing. I believe that. Is or do they just have to watch panels like we're watching? I don't understand. I don't know how this uh, synchro staff thing works. Uh, it doesn't work. Oh, we haven't actually talked about Toro. I this think it has to be like a... That synchro staff must be like going on a ride at Disney, like an Epcot Center. <laughs> you just go past these panels and it explains to you like why these plant people are talking. And This is actually the first time Toro's had a speaking role in the comic. Oh, did he talk? I didn't notice. He does. Toro first appeared in Human Torch Comics number two in the fall of 1940. He is Thomas Raymond, born in New York City. His parents died in a train derailment and he went to live at a circus. As, as you did as an orphan in the 1940s. Sounds familiar. And that's where he found out he was immune to flame. Uh, when the torch stopped by one day, it activated all of Tor's powers, and he became his partner. Got married, was killed in a fight with a mad thinker. We pretty much went over Seems all that. Seems like we talked about that. Yeah. Very familiar. What else you got? Note-wise. As we were talking about the Kree and the Kotati, I, I couldn't help but think, like, when do we get to the part where the Kree actually have sex with the Kotati, and they make the broccoli men that were in Next Wave? <laughs> <laughs> or in the Phoenix killed in, uh... <laughs> yeah. In yeah, the, 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 the uh, Dabari. The, yeah. The, that whole race of people. <laughs> uh, I was waiting for it to happen. I am amazed that the star is still over the mansion from the beginning of the freaking Celestial Madonna plot, which was like 20 issues ago. Yeah, I don't understand how Moondragon gets out of her. She flies and lands on top of the mansion, gets out, and then goes, oh, there's a star here. How did you not see that when you were coming in for a landing? I'm pretty sure you flew past it. And why is it there? And when does it go away? Yeah, I, is it still there? Or is it going to be 1995? And then they're going to be like, oh my god, that star is still above the mansion. Yeah, I thought it was supposed to be there to signify that the Celestial Madonna was there, but all the people that could be the Celestial Madonna actually aren't there. The, do you, poor Jarvis, because, you know, he's probably trying to sleep, and he's <laughs> like, would someone turn the star off? He's got the drapes pulled and right? like extra stuff jammed against the windows. It's like Christmas in here all the time. Oh. I, I like when they were talking about the Visions. Uh, no, they weren't talking about the Visions' origin. There's more about the, the Human Torch's origin. The part where he flew out, uh, where he was buried out in the desert, and then an atomic bomb landed on him. As you did. And, and, and the caption actually says that he was cured. He was, his powers were cured by the atomic bomb. He was cured! And then, like, a couple years later, oh, wait, no, he wasn't. No, no, no he's going to die. Now, you and your wife have not been feeling well. Have you considered... <laughs> Gamma radiation? Uh, yeah, being near an atomic bomb as it explodes. <laughs> if it wasn't so far away, I might try it. Sure. Yeah. I'm actually really curious, and this is part of the reason why I'm so frustrated with the flashbacks, because I'm, when I read this issue, I did not remember what was going on with Wanda. We'll talk about it next issue. But I did not remember why she was acting like this. And so I, uh, I was actually really curious about what was going on, and I was so frustrated that we actually had a plot here, and we had to, we had to leave it. Though I do wanna, I, I think it's important to point out that oh, when the Scarlet Witch and Moon Dragon fight, was this in your notes? Yep, yep. Wanda attacked Moon Dragon with some drapery. Had to. It was a nice callback, and it, and she won that way. She did. What she hit her with first? Like a block of wood? I don't know what she's throwing at her. Yeah, it's some kind of wood. Oh, right, because she said she can control natural things. Like, wood? Yeah, where did that come from? I know, right? Is she ripping the banister apart? I don't understand. That'll be interesting to, to Aha, explain. block of wood. Bet you didn't expect that. I have no more comments on this issue. There's an interesting part where... I don't even remember what page it I must be before that, just because of the order that my notes are in. Where Iron Man actually makes a comment that he feels bad for all the defense contracts that Stark Industries had fulfilled. 
Did you have a note about that? No. I saw some interesting dialogue. It's probably the earliest mention of, of Tony Stark having some regret over what he had built his company on. Yeah, you're right. It is the first time we've really seen that. It'll obviously become more important in Iron Man's own comic than it will in the Avengers. But it's important to note that Tony Stark you know, starts out as a weapons builder in, the, in 1963. And here, by the middle of the 70s, he's already thinking about getting trying to get out of the weapons business. I'm sorry. My, I really my only other note was... Woohoo, it's almost over. I didn't know that we were only halfway through when I wrote that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, what do you have on the bull- on Stan Soapbox? Uh, there's just a bunch of reminders here. Uh, Origin of Marvel Comics book again. Marvel value stamps, discount coupon. Uh, this isn't even Stan Soapbox. This is just the whole bullpen bulletins. Uh, make sure you address your letters to the title that you're sending your letter to. And then they make a mention that the, I guess Foom is still a thing. Yeah. Besides Stan plugging the calendar and the Origin of Marvel comics, they're both getting sequels. He's very excited about that. He also mentions that EMTs are wearing Make Mine Marvel buttons. Yeah, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I don't either. Um, what did you say about the Marvel value stamps? Uh, you get a 10% discount right. coupon. It's so If weird. you mail in a completed album. Now, but we talked before about getting a discount on Comics Connect, uh, Comics Conventions. If you showed your album. Right. But that way you got to keep it. Yeah. Well, I don't want fun. a 10% discount if I have to mail my album in. And it's weird. Isn't it like some rotating discount? Like you send your first book in and they give you a coupon. And then when you use that coupon, they'll send you another coupon. Oh, that's right. You so you have, coupons. you have to mail the, the book in, but you get a 10% discount forever. Yeah. Forever? Forever, ever? And they also, when they're talking about your letters, they also tell you to keep them short, typewritten, and send a self-addressed stamped envelope if you want to reply. There's no letters page again this year. Again, no. No letters pages. So who's your MVP? The Draperies. <laughs> I picked the Scarlet Witch because at least she has a plot line. So we picked the same thing, really. Uh, useless character? Uh, Vision. I, it sucks being alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least everyone else gets to hang out together. I picked everybody else in the book because they're dragging us through issue after issue with flashbacks, and I don't appreciate it. Is it an Avengers level threat? Uh, this is less of a threat than the chair last issue. Yeah, there's still no threat because we're still not telling a story. Final grade? I'm coming down. It's a B minus. I'm going to go down a half grade. It's not as interesting as last issue for sure. Uh, it's a D minus. <laughs> See, you're going down too. Uh, I just it's pages and pages of narration. Uh, I enjoy the Moon Dragon Wanda stuff, and that's the only reason this F, this issue wasn't an F for me. So this was a wonderful episode. <laughs> people are going to love to listen to this. I am so sorry, people. I knew I remember. This is when I remember the Celestial Madonna saga. Is that eventually it bogs down in issue after issue after issue of flashbacks. You know, when I heard the name Celestial Madonna, I already hated it. <laughs> I just, I don't understand what Steve Owen Gohart was thinking, and I'm blaming it on the change of, of editor-in-chief from Roy Thomas to Len, to Len Wine that this got approved. Because I have to believe, like, Jim Shooter would have been like, I'm sorry, Steve, what are you trying to sell me for four issues? This is why I told you that I never liked Mantis when I was reading these. Yeah. I, and it sucks because when I when she actually did first show up, I mean, we've talked about it many times, I was like, yeah. oh, well, she's kind of interesting. So much potential. And they just ruined her. Well, that's it for this episode. Everyone gets... It's because it's summer, we're doing a short episode, go out, swim, go go sun tanning. Take your mind off everything you just heard. Yeah, just, you know. But just know that next episode will be even more exciting. And by that we mean worse. But there's a giant size issue in there, so it'll be bigger and worse. Actually, the giant size issue... Well, we won't talk about it. <laughs> Alright, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Avenging Hour. We have a Facebook page that you can look for if you feel like it. We actually have a, a webpage, AvengingHour.com, and our email address is mail at AvengingHour.com. I feel like 
one of those one of those few MST3Ks, Mr. Science Theater 3000s, where the movie was so bad that like Joel and the bots actually began to like like want, like it began to break them. I feel like them. <laughs> I feel like we have been sent these issues by the Mads, and they are beginning to break me. And I, I all I need, all I want to do right now is find a, an escape from the satellite of love and get back to Earth. Are we going to whistle the theme song as we leave? In the not too distant future. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> See ya. Bye.